welcome to episode 81 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And this week, uh, uh, our special guest is Margie Gilbert, uh, who's now the program manager at Team Cumbre, um, which is spelled C-Y-M-R. You, uh, but does a lot of cybersecurity, uh, 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 Margie, what are they, what's their claim to fame? I would say the best claim to fame is a lot of malware analysis mm-hmm. and their views on global internet traffic. Okay. Not trafficking, but Tra- traffic. Traffic. All right. Uh, and uh, in addition, uh, we've got several uh, um, of our regulars uh, here. Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, overseeing criminal computer crimes, among other things, uh, uh, and now doing criminal and civil litigation here at Steptoe. Alan Cohn, former head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of the DHS policy. Office uh, now of counsel to Steptoe and Maury Schenk, uh, former managing partner of our London office, now still an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as a private equity investor and a director of technology companies. Uh, And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NASA and DHS record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer, and just returned from New York where I saw Hamilton which I have to say, in addition to having been directed by the son of a Steptoe partner, uh, uh, Tommy Kale, uh, was really good. I, I mean, you don't expect Broadway plays to tell you something you didn't know about historical figures. Uh, and this was a, it was a deep psychological analysis of, of Hamilton and a lot of fun because it was all in rap with a minority cast. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson was particularly flamboyant and uh, um, comes off very badly. Uh, oh, so, great. Hamil- I, I highly recommend it. Hamilton is back. Maybe losing the $20 bill, but got the the musical now and No that uh, that was it. It was it was kind of uh Jefferson meh and uh, Hamilton what a great guy. Uh uh yeah, really interesting. Uh, uh soon it'll turn out he was always a democrat. <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson not so much, right? Uh okay. Uh so for our news, uh the uh Top item this week and probably next is what I called uh, China in the Bull Shop. Uh, President Xi will sit down with President uh, Obama in the White House uh, uh, and talk cybersecurity. And there's been a week of preparatory leaks and expectations uh, uh, adjusting uh, uh, done by uh, uh, the White House and others. Uh, um, I was going to call this China in the bull shop, and then I thought, now maybe it ought to be um, cybersecurity, uh, he said, she said. Alan, what would you summarize all of that uh, shadow boxing uh, as amounting to? Because we're going to get that for sure, right? Well, definitely. And I think that the, the most interesting things and the most interesting statements may be the ones that happen outside the room rather than inside the room. Uh, so first, a, a senior member of the party apparatus comes in uh, last week in anticipation of the summit. This is uh, Meng Jianzhu, who is the uh, the senior uh, party official in charge of domestic security okay. in China, meets with justice and state, homeland security, treasury, 
uh, as well as Susan Rice and I don't know what have you heard. I heard about I, what I heard is that the talks were ugly. Yes, exactly. And I that's think, so. I think I think somebody uh, they were described as uh, a candid. Uh, yes. which is uh, b- diplomatic for ugly. Exactly, blunt. So, yes. Um, so typically that would, those types of meetings would be the last piece of, of baking the cake that's going to be uh, displayed at the uh, at But the then, then, you know, we saw David Sanger's story over the weekend that said, uh, oh, no, they're, they're, they're on the verge of reaching agreement on a... Uh, uh, some kind of statement of principles that would be basically no first use of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in peacetime. I, which I guess, you know, the answer is, well, duh. Cause once you attack people's critical infrastructure, it ain't peacetime anymore. Correct. Um, so this is kind of the final narrowing watering of a, uh, a, a, an effort that the U.S. was somewhat late to the party on in trying to get uh, international norms mm-hmm. adopted, that whole slate of these varying in number depending on the time and the venue. Um, but now we are down, at least as, as reported, to this one norm. Right. Right. Or potentially just a generic embrace of, of the, the idea GGE. of norms. Yes, yes. of the G- GGE working group um, session, of course. So. As you said, uh, no first use. That's an interesting theory to take from from arms control and and, and start out with. Um, but none of this actually addresses the the crux of the concern right. between the parties. This is, you know, I, this this whole effort to analogize cyber weapons to nuclear weapons. I, I knew exactly where that was going, which is, oh, we've took care of. Nuclear weapons, we've managed them for all these years. We can manage this. And, and, uh, and then they're ra- uh, rolling out these kind of tired tropes from the nuclear age that, that weren't particularly impressive when we were talking about nukes. Totally unimpressive when we we're talking about, uh, biological weapons, for example. And, and meaningless in this context. And that's the problem. You know, highly proliferated threat. Difficulties in attribution, even in the if, even as technical attribution increases in a, you know difficulties in proving attribution. So uh, the norms are only going to go so far. An arms control accord is is interesting, but I think it gets back to what everyone seems to be saying, and and you said on a previous uh, uh, podcast, which is that norms are what countries do. Right. They're not what countries say, um, and they're barely what countries agree to. Uh, they are what countries do, and so. That's where the the other posturing around the summit is so interesting. So, of course, before she gets to Washington, he's landing in Seattle right. on Tuesday and has beckoned, summoned the uh, the heads of uh, of major tech uh, U.S. tech companies like Apple, Facebook, IBM, Google, Uber. Um, everyone's pretty mum about who's going. Right. Right. Who's going to show up? Um, the allure is great because of the market potential. The challenges are legion. Right. Uh, sign the pledge, agree to the national security law, to the CT law, to the banking regulations. Um, but yet uh, a real statement that uh, that President Xi can land in Seattle and have an audience with uh, with major U.S. tech executives before making his way to Washington. Right. Discussion. So he gets to meet in the Washington that counts uh, before he comes to the Washington that doesn't. Uh, so I guess I should introduce Margie uh, because um, Margie's got 20 years at NSA, 10 at CIA doing cyber stuff. Uh, stuff. 
uh, and then worked at the National Counterintelligence Executive, as I know it, uh, the and um, Homeland Security Oversight Committee, Committee on Congress, on the and then uh, the National Security Council. Right. So you've you've we've, been witness we've, to this we've been kind this of road spin before. up before. <laughs> yes. uh, what do you make of all the preliminaries here? Well, the elephant in the room, I believe, is economic espionage. That's what China has always been about from for the last what ten years. Right. And even with NCIC or NCSC now, with a report that was produced, I think in 2010, that named China and Russia. Which was, uh, was a step forward. A step time. forward. Right. Uh, the government bureaucrats thought it was groundbreaking. Industry folks were kind of laughing like, well, it's about time. Right. <laughs> so the question goes back to this week is we can talk about norms in military terms, but what about the economics? And that's the what? crux of China at the end of the day is, as Jim Lewis, who's been a visitor here many times, has said, if they're stealing your schematics on building furniture or autos or, oh my, aircraft carriers, right. now what? And if you're going to do sanctions, that's one option. But then we were talking earlier about the May um, Department of Justice naming of the five hack- military hackers. Uh, so what do you do? Are you going to arrest them when they set, set on, uh, yes. step on the soil? Well, they're never coming to this country. Right. Well, you <laughs> so know, what do we do? I, it's it's not quite as bad as that yeah. I, uh, because, in fact, those guys are not going to spend their careers in the PLA. Right. They, and when they leave, they hope to do what so many hackers that worked for the Israeli government uh, did, which is to open a, their own security firm. Uh, not that that would ever happen in the United States. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, they, they have to come to California to find money, probably, yeah. uh, or at least they would like to. Uh, and now they can't. At least those five guys can't. That's true. And, and we do tend to forget sometimes it is a communist government. But the cap- oh, she is really re- reminding everybody. <laughs> well, this is a gentle reminder. But the, the the fact that capitalism has really been embraced there, to your point, I think is is very valid going forward because it's all about money at right. the end of the day and a better way of life. So, do you do you think that uh, I, I agree with you that, that we're not going to get anything on uh, espionage? One of the questions uh, is: Does that mean they give us some? Norm that doesn't actually have any impact today, and so it's just a promise about what they won't do if they decide they won't do it. Um, and in return, we say, okay, so we won't sanction all the people who benefited from commercial espionage by the PLA. That would be the question for my esteemed. Okay, all right. Lawyers in the room. Still retaining just a little bit of the discretion that got her the career she had in government. Uh, Yeah, I think I think I think they're gonna they're gonna uh, wimp out on this. That's definitely possible. And I think I was gonna say just um, to the point that you were making, it's not just the individuals, but the company, the entities, the academic institutions, the universities. We've talked about this before as well. The indictments, not only the ones from the spring of 2014, but this year as well in the Northern District of California, kind of lay out a roadmap of entities and uh, and activities uh, for potential sanctioning also. So, you know, and it may be, although it's it's hard to imagine that this is the case, that the uh, that the the sanctions uh, executive order is sitting there waiting. Um, for the the meeting to end 
Right. And as, as soon some as he, have said, yeah. yes. <laughs> as soon as he leaves U.S. airspace, yeah. uh, it, it can happen. I, you know, uh, uh, it requires a more tough-minded administration than I think we have, but uh, I would welcome it, uh, and I would be glad to eat crow if uh, it turns out to be the case. Maury, you're just back from China. Uh, any thoughts uh, from looking at it in that perspective? Well, I'll jump up from the detail, just a couple of geopolitical observations or what's going on in China observations is, one, the economy is really slowing down there and people, everybody feels it. And the anti-corruption campaign is a big driver of that. So the Chinese government is not about to give away chips um, that they perceive as having economic impact. The second one is that they're this government is um, not delivering economics as well, uh, uh, economic uh, growth as well. They're saber-rattling a bit. There's a lot of talk there about the big uh, military parade that happened a few weeks ago. Um, given that background, I don't think they have huge incentive to agree to anything from those domestic pressures. And so I think any kind of deal is going to be pretty pretty difficult to achieve. It's going to be pretty difficult to get a result that the U.S. will be happy about. Yeah, that makes sense to me, which would explain why the talks were so ugly. Uh, um, and uh, this is this is a, a if they're having trouble with their economy, the idea of stealing secrets to goose the economy has great appeal. Well, the the idea of uh, given the, the the what Maury has said. Uh, the idea of the the Chinese kind of uh, just simply agreeing to to concede on strategic issues is somewhat fanciful. Right. Uh, but again, it comes it comes down to what the administration's willing to do, what they're willing to lay out, what they're willing to stand behind. Uh, that that then makes the Chinese. So for those of us who would like to see a tougher line, I guess I would say um, President Xi is perfectly capable of. Being so aggressive and so difficult that the president feels disrespected. And that's the one thing that will lead to sanctions is if he, if he feels he's been treated badly, uh, and humiliated in some fashion, uh, even inter, even on an interpersonal basis, uh, um, look for sanctions coming up soon. Uh, speaking of, uh, humiliation, uh, um, the crypto policy that the government is working on, uh, is, uh, uh, I saw a story that suggested they had three options. Uh, one was to totally disavow uh, the FBI DOJ position, throw them overboard and said we will never ask for uh, uh, legislation. The second was we're not asking for legislation now. Uh, and the third was simply to continue on the way we are, uh, which I, struck me as sort of variations on nothing. Uh, but, uh, it serves the requirement. Doesn't the NSC have an obligation, Margie, to produce, uh, papers that have at least three options in them? Well, yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> yeah, this one is, though, is, uh, no, maybe no, and I don't think so. <laughs> All with great assessments right behind it. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be hot. Too hot, too cold, and just right, right? So. Meanwhile, uh, as the administration sort of inches up on giving up on or uh, the uh, FBI, DOJ um, uh, campaign, um, it's really paying off elsewhere. Uh, MI5 is uh, uh, 
condemning strong encryption. The New York Department of Financial Services has said, uh, well, you know, there ain't going to be no crypto for the financial services industry. And India has put out a draft report saying, uh, uh, you know, we think everybody should be able to recover keys for at least 90 days, if I read, read that right. Uh, uh, so um, Jim Comey's just a prophet uh, without honor in his own country. I think that Jim Comey's done a very good job of being the the voice for this issue for the U.S. government. And I think that he has made it very clear, though, that although he did not come up through the ranks of the FBI, that he very much has the FBI and federal law enforcement's interests for sure. first and foremost. But that's different than what the White House, what the president should be doing on this issue. So I, uh, you know, he's, uh, I'll ask Jason, he's way out there. Uh, 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 Sally Yates is out there. Jim Comey's out there. Um, is it really something, is it, is it conceivable that the, uh, White House will just saw that limb out, off? Well, you know, it's, it's something that they, uh, the law enforcement community and the intelligence community have been concerned about since this going dark issue, uh, became a, a, a real uh, uh, concern and a real mm-hmm. priority for the FBI. We talked about it on last week's show as well. Uh, in fact, it was such a concern that uh, we made a decision to include the, the Commerce Department in the uh, DOJ discussions because, you know, ultimately this was going to come down to a contest, a pissing contest between justice and commerce, and uh, and that there was a real risk that commerce and state and, and the trade authorities would win. So I, I think... Um, you know the the law enforcement people wouldn't say this publicly, but I think you, you're what we're seeing in the you know no maybe no and I don't know is is a uh, is a bit of a caving to commerce and, and state oh, and trade yeah. authorities and this is and, this, this is an exact this is an exact replay of uh, what happened in the Clinton administration nearly 20 years ago um, to a T. Yes, they, law enforcement will definitely have its legs cut out from under it. I, I don't understand what. Uh, really what has motivated Comey to go out on such a limb since it's been clear from the get-go he was never going to get what he's been seeking. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, knowing him well, I, I think it's because he, he believes it. I mean, this isn't a political calculus on his part. I think the law enforcement people are taking this position because they believe it. And, you know, we've talked uh, many shows ago about the, the fact that this is a pendulum and there will at some point be an incident um, and law enforcement will be able to point to Encryption as being something that prevented them from potentially prevented them from from discovering it or preventing it, and and the pendulum will swing the other way. But I, you know, I but what's really what's really weird is when pressed for a single example of where encryption has thwarted an investigation, they have not been able to come up with one. That I mean, it seems to me you don't launch a big public campaign like this without being able to come up with what you're obviously going to be asked for, which is an example of where it's caused a problem. You know, if, if that I think, yeah, well, I think that that to some extent the widespread use of encryption is a newer phenomenon, and I think that he's making a prediction based on the 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 fact that for years there's there has been uh, uh, it's been the case that tech, technology uh, and the fact that as many internet communication providers have gone to market with technology they don't have the ability to wiretap has interfered with cases. They would be able to point to a significant number of investigations both criminal and intelligence that were thwarted or delayed or in some cases completely stalled because of the inability to wiretap encryption is just the latest problem to be added to that mix of technological problems yeah it's it's it, it is also hard if if encryption really thwarts your investigation you can't say the guy is guilty so it, it's a little bit 
uh, would be a little bit unusual for the uh, deputy attorney general or the head of the FBI to say, this guy's guilty, but we can't convict him because we don't have the evidence, and we don't have the evidence because of encryption. They don't really know what's what's there. All they can say is uh, that investigation isn't going anywhere because of the uh, encryption. That's right. Uh, so, uh, Michael, did you did you look at the India uh, uh, proposal or uh, Maury? Because uh, uh, you know that's a big market, uh, and uh, uh, I went out there probably. Four years ago, to try to persuade them that uh, maybe in, uh, regulating encryption wasn't going to work, uh, uh, and it looks like it only resulted in stalling rather than uh, ending their dream of uh, having the keys to all the encryption that was being used in, in the country. Well, it's, it, yeah, I look, did look at it, and it's it's something we've been waiting for for seven years now because this uh, the draft regulations are issued pursuant to the Information Technology. Amendment Act of 2008, and you know we've told the subscribers to our uh, International Guide to Encryption Regulations that uh, rules were forthcoming. We've told them that for seven years because that's what the Indian government's been saying. They finally now put out draft regulations, um, which are really, really far out on one end of the extreme, the the you know the pro law enforcement end of the extreme. As you noted earlier, it requires uh, companies government agencies and individual users of encryption uh, to store plain text and make it available to law enforcement for 90 days after the date of whatever message or, or transaction uh, was was sent or made. Um, businesses also have to uh, keep the, the pair of plain text and the encrypted text to provide to law enforcement on demand. The government gets to prescribe what algorithms and key sizes are allowable Vendors of encryption have to register uh, with the government and, and be approved, you know, provide uh, samples of their encryption for the government to review before they're allowed to sell it. It's quite sweeping. Um, this is just a draft. Uh, comments are due on October 16th or by October 16th. I don't think we're going to see a final rule for, yeah, I won't say another seven years, but I think it'll be quite some time because I think yeah. you'll see quite a strong pushback against this. Um, I guess I suppose it's possible that the government has firmly made up its mind and this is just, you know, they're going through the motions now of accepting public comments since they can anticipate what the comments will be, but uh, I tend to think that there'll be more delay rather than um, a quick implementation of these rules. Yeah, although, you know, look, they've got a new prime minister who's much more decisive, uh, and if this came out under him, it's because he believes it. So uh, you can't be absolutely sure they won't go down this road. Well, I just, I agree with Michael on um, on the India situation. They're far out there on in the small minority of countries that restrict um, domestic use of encryption, um, this may be the most extreme now exceeding countries like Russia. And India has a significant IT industry, so I think there could be some pretty significant objections to that. Yeah, I, I, I took a quick look at the press, and you can't even understand what the proposal is because the stories are so busy condemning the whole idea. Um, uh, so, yeah, it will be a, it will be a battle uh, for sure. Um, Let's turn to uh, another battle that's been shaping up in Congress, really, I guess, shaping up for the last uh, 
um, seven years itself, uh, which is uh, uh, requiring warrants to get uh, access to old emails. Uh, um, Rick Salgado from Google uh, testified, uh, um, and both the SEC and the FTC testified that that would be a really bad idea. Uh, and uh, uh, Michael Jason, I wasn't completely clear on whether the FTC and the SEC were saying they use subpoenas now all the time to get uh, the content of emails or they just want to have that in reserve. Uh, uh, but it does sound like this is the, the main barrier now that DOJ has more or less uh, uh, endorsed the legislation to the passage of something that will significantly raise the standard for getting content. Yeah, I think you're you were right to pick up on that ambiguity because they they left it very obscure as to whether they currently use subpoenas or some other authority short of a warrant to get uh, email content um, as part of a civil investigation. Uh, the, the Justice Department also weighed in, you know, basically saying that while it agrees ECPA should be amended to require a warrant in criminal investigations, it doesn't want to interfere with. The ability of uh, federal agencies and civil investigations, including DOJ components, not just the SEC or the FTC, but but DOJ civil uh, uh, authorities, um, to be able to get email content with something less than a warrant. Does, does, does that mean, make could, sense? You, does that make any sense at all to say, oh, if it were if we were investigating like a major financial crime or a terrorist attack, we'd have to get a warrant because uh, no one wants those investigations to be easy. Uh, but if we're just looking into, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, take away somebody's right to be a federal contractor or uh, uh, potentially bringing up uh, an action for damages, well, then, of course, we should get the content uh, without having to sweat very hard. Yeah, it does seem a little upside down, and it seems to me, I mean, there's a, there's a fix to address this problem. You know, if, if DOJ civil components don't have uh, warrant authority, uh, you could just create a new statutory authority that requires probable cause uh, in order to get the content of email as part of a civil investigation. And then you address the privacy uh, concerns as well as the enforcement concerns uh, in one in one provision. I, I could not agree more. I mean, this is if if I got paid by the ECPA reform hearing when I was in the Justice Department, I could have retired early. I mean, this is the same <laughs> hearing and the same discussion we've been having since 2010, 2011. The only thing that's changed is that since 2013, the department has, on the criminal side, has dropped its opposition to right. a warrant for all requ- content requirement, and now we're just down to the SEC and the FTC. And you're you're completely right. It's not. It's hard to argue that the privacy interest in stored emails depends on. The, how severe the sanction is in, in, uh, uh, in the investigation. And as Michael said, this is a, the solution is, is just staring, uh, Congress in the face, uh, which is to give them, you could, whatever the name of the process is, give them a, a, a type of order that they could obtain based on probable cause. And, you know, the SEC is, is suggesting that they want the ability to use a subpoena, uh, only after they've attempted to get it from the target of the investigation. The target has refused and to give the target the opportunity to challenge the, the subpoena. You know, you could craft uh, some process, some procedure where the, the the target of the investigation has the opportunity to challenge the the warrant or the probable cause order as well. But the, the, holding them to a probable cause standard, whether it's a civil investigation, a regulatory proceeding, or a criminal case, is not a, a heavy lift, uh, and it's hard to justify a weaker standard simply because the the consequence of a violation uh, or a guilty finding is is financial as opposed to to criminal. Um, and and they're, they're, this is an easy. But it is it does it does 
pose a problem for people who believe in civil liberties and the regulatory state. Uh, yes. Know, Elizabeth Warren, call your office. I, uh, this is, this is a tough one. Uh, uh, because when the FTC asks for it or the SEC asks for it, they're asking for it to regulate people that, uh, uh, don't have a lot of, um, uh, favor on the Hill. Right. Well, it'd be interesting well, to see. Among Democrats. It'd be interesting to see if Congress writes a carve out for Congress to you, to be able to use a subpoena I, to of get. Of course. They have the same problem. Right. They have the same problem. Problem. All right. Uh, well, it would be uh, a civil liberties irony if the result of this is that uh, Congress and the FTC and the SEC uh, end up with the authority to break down my door to get my data. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, the EU uh, has also weighed in on a controversial issue, saying they're not going to do a new data retention law, which is uh, – Unusual because the old one was struck down with a kind of invitation to write a new one, uh, and instead it looks as though each state is going to be left on their own. Is that right, Maury? Yeah, uh, data retention is sort of an odd beast because it's retention of data is something that's a law enforcement task, and law enforcement is usually done by the individual member states. And some of them had passed laws in the 1990s and early noughties on this, on data retention. But in the wake of the Madrid bombings in 2005, it was decided to regulate it at an EU level uh, for security reasons and in order to harmonize member state laws. That EU directive was struck down uh, last spring by the European Court of Justice, and that leaves us back in the situation we were in before 2005 or 2007 when it took effect, that member states can regulate so long as their laws are in accordance with um, the principles that were set out in the ECJ decision. And that's what individual member states have been doing since last year, is deciding whether their laws do fit. Uh, but now the EU last Wednesday uh, made it clear that they're not going to come back onto the field, which means that this patchwork is going to continue. If you're a carrier operating across the EU, that's probably um, annoying because you've got to deal with a patchwork. If you're a civil libertarian, you probably like it because you've gotten rid of the laws in some countries and you can keep fighting them on an individual basis. Yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, uh, okay, uh, I, uh, I, uh, that, I thought the data retention law actually started even earlier, that it was a post 9-11, uh, decision and a pre-7-7, uh, uh, decision, but, uh, uh, I may be wrong about that. No, it was, it was pre-7-7, it was 2005. Okay. After the Madrid. Oh, it was bombing. Madrid. Okay. And then it had, yeah, and then it had, um, I think they had 18 months, so, uh, it was implemented, I think, in early 2007, before the London bombings. All right. And it's, it was, and it stuck around from then until 2014. And at age seven, it was uh, put out of its misery, I guess, after, or, or however you want to put it, <laughs> or at least uh, sort of sent back in a kind of judicial remand, uh, which seems to have yeah. had a real impact. Because uh, um, yeah. there were, there were some, were there any countries that hadn't yet implemented it? No, well, um, there were a few where the national data retention laws had been overturned um, on national constitutional bases or inconsistent with other EU rights. Germany was one where oh, um, so they'll data never go back. Had right? been extremely limited. Yeah, Germany probably won't, and some. Um, yeah, I mean, the UK has you know has worked hard to keep it in force. But there was a recent um, Supreme Court decision um, potentially invalidating it. 
Um, so it's, it's all over the map now, and it's changing every month uh, in some country. All right. Well, uh, good for the lawyers, at least. Uh, uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of good for the lawyers, Judge Leon uh, famously, uh, uh, he of the exclamation point filled uh, attack on the NSA 215 program, uh, who did everything but take out a, an ad in Craigslist for a new plaintiff uh, so that he could keep this case and get, a, you know, another opinion out the door under the deadline before mid-November uh, uh, got his plaintiff. Uh, is isn't that right, uh, Michael? Yeah, uh, Larry Clayman added a, uh, I believe, a lawyer who's a subscriber to Verizon Business to the the list of named plaintiffs. So that um, should satisfy the D.C. Circuit's uh, concerns about standing. Problem for the plaintiffs now is that the uh, Court of Appeals still hasn't issued the mandate. So uh, there's really not much going on officially at the district court level until they get the mandate. Um, and I think he's. He's filed a motion to expedite the issuance of the mandate, which apparently the government says it may oppose. Uh, so they're really they're really now litigating every single um, tiny step in the process as the, the government tries to drag this out until uh, the date when the policy goes away on its own. And Leon and, and Clayman try to uh, get a, a, a final constitutional ruling from the district court. So they're going to uh, issue. Uh, let's let's suppose he wins his race, I, I, which I think is you know that's, there's some possibility he'll do that. Um, it's then going to become moot uh, when the last uh, uh, Section 215 dog dies, uh, and at which point I would have thought there'd be a motion to vacate his ruling, which I, I'm sure will be even more exclamation point filled, uh, uh, as moot, uh, which he will deny, but that's an appealable uh, uh, judgment, I think, and he'll t- it'll go back to the um, Court of Appeals, which will say, you know, you didn't get the hint, Judge Leon, but we're just going to wipe this off the books. Am, am, am I wrong to think that's the likely uh, scenario? No, I think you're probably right, but you know, I, I don't think really what they're after here is is law that matters. I think they're they're looking at their legacy and they want to be on the what they consider the right side of history, and th- you know, that's all that matters. Yeah, so he gets to say it twice, and uh, um, a, and then doesn't get reviewed on appeal, which is pretty sweet if you're a district court on the merits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, good news. Uh, the Heartland hacker pleaded guilty. Yeah, I have to limit what I can say because I worked on this case when I was in the department. But uh, one of the Heartland well, then that's hackers. Good. This is this has got to feel good, though. Oh no, it does. But he's one of the Heartland hackers. Okay. It's Vladimir Drinkman, who, if you're for those avid readers of the 2009 indictment, is Hacker Two. Um, hacker One, uh, Callanan is still out there, uh, as are some other co-conspirators. But he was arrested in in the Netherlands in, in the summer of 2012, uh, and he was charged uh, back in 2009 with the Heartland Payment Systems hack, which uh, I think still is considered the largest in U.S. Yeah. history, although there's certainly um, been that, that title has been threatened several times since then. Um, and his, his case is notorious in part because he was in a conspiracy with Albert Gonzalez, who's a, a U.S. person who was involved in both the Dave & Buster's TJX and the Heartland Payment Systems hacks and got concurrent 20-year sentences. And whom I met at a recent conference. They're a very well-spoken, thoughtful guy who sounds very contrite about all the things he did. One of the many people in this space who you think if they could use their powers for good and not for evil, it would be a, a different world. But he got concurrent 20-year sentences, which are still, I think, the largest, the longest ever uh, ever imposed for hacking in the United States. 
Um, this group that Drinkman and Colin and, and some others are part of also did the JetBlue attack and Dow Jones and NASDAQ and, and some others. And it's a group of Russians and, and a Ukrainian who uh, just communicated seamlessly despite language barriers, time zone barriers. Um, the fact that, that he was caught and, uh, and the case was built is a reflection of the fact that law enforcement is increasingly able to do the same thing, not, maybe not quite as efficiently as the hackers can, but we're getting there. But the guys were still out there. Kalanen, Hacker One, is perhaps an even bigger target. He's also indicted in the Southern District of New York. Uh, Mikhail Ridikov, who's one of the co-conspirators, provides bulletproof hosting services, and that's something that is a, a priority for law enforcement uh, because that those services support uh, the infrastructure for multiple hackers. Um, and uh, and so they're, they're still after them. But the fact that Drinkman is uh, in custody and has now pled guilty is certainly a significant accomplishment. Yeah. Well, congratulations uh, uh, in absentia, at to, least, well, to, and, and, and to, to the DOJ. Credit to CSIPS and to the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey who brought the case. Yeah. Uh, what did, did they bring it when uh, Chris Christie was uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney? I no. Think he might have been the governor by then. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, and uh, I'm going to close this with a, um, a comment we got by email from Robert Horn, uh, who, picking up on our uh, um, Criticism of the HHS Office of Civil Rights as particularly aggressive uh, um, made some points that I thought actually were pretty good points about uh, uh, compromise of health data, which I was I, I poo pooed it as as not necessarily any worse than having your credit card stolen. Uh, uh, and he pointed out that actually, if you can use it for medical fraud. Uh, um, the average cost to a consumer from that kind of compromise is $14,000, and it's very hard to uh, avoid uh, those charges because they're Medicare, Medicaid uh, kinds of charges, uh, um, and uh, that a patient really doesn't see what the security uh Systems are, except in the context of one of these uh, um, lawsuits. And the other point he made was that um, there's an actually a a reason that some of these privacy laws are over enforced by hospitals and doctors, and that is they deal a lot with people who are dangerous to their patients or to them, uh, a, and. Often when they say, oh, yeah, HIPAA requires that I see your ID and find out what the nature of your relationship is with the, uh, the person you're looking for, uh, that what they're really saying is, give me time to look you up and see if you have a restraining order or some other restriction uh, so that we know to have security uh, uh, accompany you on any of your visits. So I, I thought those were... Uh, interesting and uh, maybe helped explain why health data should be treated differently than financial data. Um, anyway, so thank you, Robert, for your feedback. And now let's turn to Margie. Uh, um, uh, Margie, uh, uh, you've had this long career in government. And, uh, um, one of the things that I know you spent a lot of time on was identity. And this administration has put a lot of effort into uh, uh, coming up with new identity technologies. Uh, um, where do you think the the pain points are in online identity issues today? I think there's a couple of areas. Um, one is we looked at, and we've done several studies in terms of looking at what we've called the, the digitization of what's traditionally physical data. Mm-hmm. 
So if I take your face or your fingerprint, like the iPhone now has a fingerprint, which will be an authentication to get into the phone. So you don't have to uh, type in the number while you're driving down the highway. Um, the challenge is now, as all this is now digitized, it's part of that cyber environment, dare I say ecosystem, which mm-hmm. is a word I'm not fond of, but it is. And so now you've got face, fingerprint, iris. Iris is a big factor when you're traveling abroad, which some of you guys will know when you go through the Mideast. Um, they're doing iris recognition yeah. now to determine if you're a, a dissident. I or think you can pull iris information off of a high-definition photo. Yes. And, and so you don't even need to uh, uh, have some official iris collection data. Yeah. So think of now you've now aggregated all this information about yourself right. combined with the behavioral aspects of, of online marketing. And then uh, I always joke about, well, everybody talks about NSA monitoring the average citizen. I'm more worried about the commercial data aggregators getting all my information and reselling it for the market, whether it's for marketing or for security purposes. And it, this happens every day. Oh, they're going to get it. Yeah. Right, because there's no reason they can't have it, uh, and they've got some perfectly good reasons why they would want to have it. Uh, so there it is. Yeah. So now add this into this thing called cybersecurity. It's a whole new dimension than we've traditionally thought about over the years of how we look at security. So are you worried that uh, the people will steal all of our physical credentials and use them to authenticate as us, or are you worried? Uh, uh, are you looking forward to the possibility you can use this as an authentication tool that is harder for people to uh, uh, to fake? So, not using the yes, no, and maybe options of a government bureaucrat, I will say yes and yes. Okay. And it, it's really up to the imagination of how you want to use the data. So whether you're looking to identify terrorists or criminals or even worse, um, any other kind of behavioral aspects, it's, it's there for the taking. So the, the administration launched all these, uh, was it Instisic or something, uh, initiatives that were designed to, to, to find um, politically correct ways to do online uh, identification. And, and it was heavily... Uh, uh, lobbied by the privacy groups, if I remember it, so that uh, my view was it was never going to work because it, it was more politically correct than it was, you know, useful. Um, did any of those things go anywhere? And I'm going to plead ignorance okay. here, which is an easy topic for me to talk about, ignorance. Uh, I don't know. All right. I honestly don't know. But I, I do know we have to think about it in terms of privacy. Um what does this mean now in terms of your normal PII mm-hmm. and the way we look at it from a legal aspect as well as a privacy aspect? Okay. So uh, it, this ties when you're talking about um, authentication and privacy, um, a lot of this is tied to monitoring networks and uh, how, uh, you know, the the direction of cybersecurity in recent years has been um, we have to watch everything you do on the network, be- looking for that one thing that 
purports to be you that isn't you uh, where you suddenly begin behaving in an unusual way. Like suddenly you're packaging up large amounts of data. You're going off to places that you've never been before right. to collect it. Uh, uh, you're encrypting it. You're exfiltrating it. Those are all things, uh, and even if you put aside the exfiltration, those are all things that uh, um, are telltale uh, um, reasons to investigate further. But it also means that the network monitors know everything about you. So um, does that mean that nobody has job pri- uh, privacy uh, and nobody should expect job privacy if they if their companies want to keep uh, uh, spies out? Well, I don't like the word spy, first of all. <laughs> well, okay, Chinese spies. How's that? <laughs> so th- there's two ways I would look at it. One is in terms of we're looking at state-sponsored activities where right. they might want to do something for their national gain. But also I, I, always, I tend to look at it in, if we're looking at insiders, for example, in terms of industrial espionage or what a company needs to look at to protect their intellectual properties, not just from the Chinese or other countries. It's also from disgruntled employees. Right. And so I get nervous when we talk about monitoring, but at the end of the day, if I'm an employee who has signed my rights away to work for, whether it's the government or a company, it comes down to what rights do I have? Well, you have, probably have none if you sign them away, and the courts have been remarkably inclined to just enforce those as opposed to, you know, impose some policy limitations on them. And maybe they were ahead of their time because today you you just can't run a network uh, without doing that kind of monitoring, can you? I would think not. Yeah. But then you have to look at those, um, he who shall not be named, uh, and the recent uh, unauthorized leaks of right. that information. So this is, this, is, this is the guy that NSA calls media, as in media leaks, when they talk about yes. uh, Snowden's activities. Uh, yes. they, they, uh, they're particularly disinclined to mention yeah. him. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, for sure, Snowden's, a, Snowden's a, a, an example of an insider threat that, that really went bad. That had some potentially administrative access that potentially use all the things we see in terms of social engineering to possibly get to that information. So how do you stop that? Well, he clearly, he, he was, he was aware that you could follow a person's activities online. So he took on multiple identities online. Uh, he borrowed other people's credentials and did some of the stuff as them. So as to muddy the waters about who was uh, out of their uh, out of their lane, um, a, and I suppose that's that's what uh, online spies will be doing too. They'll be uh, uh, stealing multiple credentials and then uh, erasing the logs to the extent that they can. So, but uh, if you're an ordinary worker, you're watching this happen and. Um, Nothing, nothing, there's nothing you can do. You can't steal other people's credentials in order to get a little privacy. So, uh, for the average worker who isn't stealing secrets, uh, uh, it strikes me that there's almost nothing that is, uh, is not available, including anything you do using TLS encryption because your employer is going to break the, tr- the, uh, the encryption 
at the boundary of the network in order to see whether you're exfiltrating data you shouldn't exfiltrate. So they have all your logon credentials for Google and uh, your uh, Dropbox and everything else, right? Potentially. Well, would <laughs> let me ask you: Would you would you recommend anybody to build a network security system that didn't do that? If I were in business and wanted to stay in business, then I would definitely follow that model. Yeah. So that that leaves that leaves people with a certainty either their their company isn't going to stay in business or right. they've lost control right. of their credentials. And so that kind of leads me to the question: Is all right? That's industry. Now, what about our own federal government? And what can we do? What should we be doing? And as I was preparing to come in today, I was kind of sadly reflecting over the years of reports and studies we've done across government, and we're talking before coming on, all the recommendations are literally the same. Yeah. There, that's there, a there's, bit discouraging. You, 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 could, you could do a great uh, uh, multiple-choice question just taking excerpts from these reports yes. and saying, uh, which praise of the public-private partnership for security was this? Was it yeah. from 1998 or 2004 or 2009 or you know last week? Yeah, and so I brought some eye candy that your listeners will never get to see, but uh, it, it's just a report from 2002 on how do you secure the Internet. And it was like 35 major companies, several federal government agency experts. We wrote it in three months. We presented it to the presidential advisory committees and with very specific details of what we need to secure, whether it's protocols or disaster recovery or information sharing and even privacy Mm -hmm. for this group. Um, I was reading through all 300 pages, and it's the same. So I'll just mention list like four of them, for example. Uh, we talk about uh, the need to secure protocols. A lot of these started but were never finished. And right. so my question comes back to a fellow former government bureaucrat, not that you would oh, ever wow. be called a bureaucrat. Oh, I, I'm happy we, to But take we it. were good bureaucrats in our day. Um, a lot of things were started, but we don't, all right, we're not able to sustain and finish them. And that's the challenge I think we have in government is to the continuity between administrations, between political appointees. If that was one thing I could fix, I think that's one thing we need to I, tackle. You know, I'm going to push on that because there are plenty of things that carry on from mm-hmm. administration to administration. Look at the drone war, right? Uh, and we have to bring that one. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or look at uh, the border security for True. terrorists uh, and the use of data. And those were all things that could have been controversial and in the end weren't because the the new administration, uh, the Obama administration, uh, thought that uh, uh, getting rid of those things was riskier than keeping them. That and in some cases, point. they embraced them. Uh, and so uh, uh, I think the problem here is there is real um, opposition. And so people mostly come in thinking, oh, those idiots, they got trapped in this quagmire. Uh, but all my friends in industry tell me how dumb that was, uh, so I'm not going to fall for that. Yeah. And then about four or five years in, they say, you know, my friends in industry seem to hate me and everything I propose for security as much as the, the last set of idiots. 
I, I may have to eat crow on that one and, and rescind those remarks because you're right. If government can't secure itself, how are we going to tell everyone else how to do it? Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would take investment advice from the SEC, but I'm happy to have them uh, engage in uh, securities regulations. So <laughs> uh, I, I, that, that, that's easy to say, but I'm not sure it's true. But, uh, um, but you you did bring in a, 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 some some stories uh, along with the other stuff that uh, that you brought in, uh, and uh, I was particularly interested in the uh, the fact that uh, uh, DHS's uh, uh, security chief actually sends phishing emails to his employees, uh, and. Uh, and then just sort of uh, exercises a kind of moral suasion over them by uh, yes. uh, in names and shames them maybe uh, or maybe he just shames them but, uh, and uh, and and you raised the question well should the government be reviewing people's security clearances if they fall for this I thought it was a fascinating approach uh, it's the carrot and stick approach and so as he as he it was mentioned in the article. Um, it's like he, he's tested this on senior executives within the government with clearances. And it's like how many times do you get a pass before you get shamed? So one of the, one of the questions I would ask is how good is the phishing email? Cause there are some emails that are very uh, good. That are very mm-hmm. good. Uh, and if he keeps it up using his name, uh, people will just, uh, you know, uh, null root his emails. Uh, they'll say, oh, I didn't open that. I'm sorry. <laughs> at, the, at the weekly meeting, they'll say, oh, I didn't open that. I thought that was the phishing email. <laughs> well, it reminds me, the other story was um, on the Apple case, talking about phishing. Right. Chinese were even uh, taken aback with this. Uh, it's not really phishing, but it was a kind of a, they were downloading code for their Apple apps I from that a third-party really yeah, site. So, so the, it, it, it was so hard to get through the security review, evidently, at Apple, that the, instead of trying to fake the uh, the code in apps, they introduced the weaknesses into the code writing uh, uh, tools that Apple had released, basically sending around a buggered version of those tools so that when people, ordinary good people who had no intent to foster uh, uh, espionage, wrote an app, they were writing in backdoors. Exactly. And so the Chinese developers were literally downloading them from a third party as opposed to the official Apple site just because it's faster. Right. And so as you said, they had the back doors loaded in, so now it's affecting lots of apps, mainly in China, but there are a couple that are U.S. Uh, US users. I sort of like that. That's it's kind of just it's one more price that the Chinese are paying for the for the Great Firewall. You know, uh, <laughs> screw them if they can't take a joke. Well, and it, it's a reminder. It's uh, don't throw uh, rocks at glass houses when yours is easy to break as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, where do you think, I mean, do you expect a lot of progress in the last 18 months of this administration on cyber issues? And if you, if you do, where? I, I do think that this administration has moved, while we haven't seen a lot publicly, I think there was a lot done internally. And that's all I'll say without right. going further. Uh, so I'll give them a lot of credit for taking a strategic view in some of these areas. Now, the question as I reflect back over my career and I think our colleagues here, what could we have done different and, and at what point do we take more drastic action? 
Right. And I think that that'll be the real challenge for the next administration as as we try to put together, uh, Stuart and I are on this uh, CSIS task force that will write the, another report for the next administration. And I think we really have to reflect hard about what are we going to do different this time. Right. How do we, I, I loved your discussion earlier on your setting the tone for a longer term uh, maybe review with China with the president's visit this week. We may not see something today. Maybe when the plane's up, we will. Uh, but at least now we've kind of set that first volley, right. which we haven't done before. Pretty amazing. So we've got to look long term as opposed to what are some tactical things we could do. And so I think that'll be the real test. After some of our recent meetings at the at this cyber commission, I kind of looked around the room and I'm like, we've all been there. We are the people who were in charge for a long period of time for cybersecurity. And so I've, I've thought, what will we do different? How will we recommend for the newer, the next generation of leadership to come in? And um, that if, if anything, as your viewers or listeners, I'm sorry, listeners come in, I'd love for them to, to see what they recommend. Yeah, there's, there's a there's a uh, FDA advisory against our ever becoming uh, viewable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Let me uh, uh, turn to a topic uh, that I've been mulling over um, recently, uh, and you know, with your background, you're ideally situated to answer it, so you probably won't. Uh, the uh, Used to be, uh, it was pretty clear what intelligence agencies did. The CIA ran, uh, agents, uh, and, uh, uh, NSA, uh, intercepted, uh, communications, uh, um, but in the cyber world, uh, those lines are not at all clear. I, uh, and, uh, um, NSA got in early doing cyber, uh, uh, espionage, but, uh, um, the CIA also jumped in, uh, and has, as far as I can tell, taken advantage of the fact that NSA was sort of a little, uh, distracted to continue to build that kind of capability. And now we've got also Cyber Command. Uh, and I wonder, in a, in a way, if we aren't setting up something that is a little like the contest over who runs drones, when and where, uh, that uh, um, NSA tied to Cyber Command does a lot of cyber espionage and has the potential to do cyber attacks. Uh, but anybody who can get in and steal secrets can also get in and, and cause havoc. Uh, um, so uh, the CIA has at least a latent capability to uh, engage in uh, what would be cyber clandestine, no, uh, 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 covert operations. Uh, um, is that any clearer inside the government than it sounds to me from the outside about where the lines are, who's doing what, uh, um, uh, who's restrained in certain areas? Well, I'll just call out what's publicly available. There's the new, is it CTIC, Cyber Threat oh, yeah. Intelligence Integration Center that is going to be hosted out of the DNI. Right. And I would imagine that might well have been based on the success of NCTC, the National Counter-Terrorist right. Center, which uh, ironically started as a TTIC under an executive order by the president until Congress codified it in legislation. 
So if that's the model for the new CTIC, one might watch to see how that progresses along the lines of how NCTC has evolved in terms of the correlation and the uh, analysis of terrorism information, but now we're looking at cyber. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that progresses and matures, I think, in the next year and if it survives through the next administration. That didn't answer your question. No, it didn't. So uh, I'm sounding like a political, uh, maybe I should run for Republican president. Uh, <laughs> All right, now you have to insult somebody. <laughs> I, I don't want you to start now. <laughs> but I think it re- at least it represents the administration's attempt to create a, a center, which centers mean a lot in government. Right. A, a lar- a, we call it a, a large an analytic C center for, at best, right? Uh, an analytic center at best. That is correct. So in terms because of- the authorities for action are still going to reside within FBI, uh, within the intelligence community, within DOD, military for action, Homeland Security. So is there anybody who doesn't have the authority to uh, conduct intelligence uh, operations using cyber means? There are a few. The Marine Mammal. uh, (laughs) Protection agencies. (laughs) To to, to quote an old colleague from uh, Office of Management and uh, Budget, that was always the one we'd use as an example. But I, I think, to your point, if I could, could, could say, one of the challenges, we never stop anything. Right. So we create, we create wonderful new centers, wonderful new agencies or departments even. But I, I was struggling to find when we last shut something down or consolidated it so we didn't have so much duplication. And that, well, that is our biggest challenge as a bureaucracy. NSA shut down half the 215 program, uh, probably with prompting, but uh, they shut down all the electronic email uh, collection. Uh, uh, did take a uh, uh, confrontation at the uh, uh, Attorney General's hospital bed to, to, to get that process started. That sounds uh, like a reality show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the makings of a great reality show. Uh, oh, well, when they run out of money, they... They cut it down. Yes, that forces people to actually cooperate then when you don't have the resources. So um, in terms of NSC issues, what are the the enduring battle lines, especially within the intelligence community, uh, on some of these cyber issues? Well, first of all, there are never any battle lines within our government. Right. Okay. We all get along. We love each other. And we do for the most part. I think it comes down to um, we've gotten very large mm-hmm. as a government. Well, and, and as a National Security Council, as, too. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that, not me. Uh, and so what do we do with the next uh, the next administration? And where does cyber really sit? I mean, we've been down this road a lot, right? You had Richard Clark, then you had Melissa Hathaway, you had... Um, Howard Schmidt, I mean, you have a whole list of very capable people uh, that all had great marks in their in their t- time and tour there. But now what? And where does this position need to reside? And that would be a question I'd ask you guys who so are much more experienced. I than think I that's am. interesting because that's a that's a way of sounding tough on cyber without actually having to do anything. Yes. Uh, and so that will appeal to people who are running for president. Uh, um, they, they get to say, "I'll name a real cyber czar who will report directly to me and not to all these other flunkies." Right. Uh, uh, and and then when they've done it, when they've said that, they're sort of stuck with it. And as you know, it all comes down to budget. 
at the end of the day, uh, I was reflecting on CNCI, the Comprehensive National right. Cybersecurity Initiative, for those who don't know the That was the Bush administration. We, we love acronyms yes. in our world. Multi-billions, I mean, many billions of dollars. Uh, one might ask, where did the money go? Are we safer as, or more secure as a result? I'd, I'd like to have safety started to add to cybersecurity, by the way. Right. Uh, because well, as, as, if, as the Internet of Things arrives, safety will become, will become a hot cyber issue. I think we'll see a shift in, in, uh, in, in importance and acceptance when we add safety to the, to the equation. We're not there yet. Right. Well, they, you know, and the, uh, uh, in their usual helpful way, the uh, plaintiff's bar, uh, class action bar, will uh, ensure that uh, safety We need our lawyers. Yeah, I, I, Clearly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because without our lawyers, nothing will change because it's going to take a class action suit or some liability, some issue that's going to raise the bar. So last question. What are you going to be doing for Team Kumre? And, and uh, uh, have you actually started? I, I've. I'm two months in, so I'm still in diaper stage, as I as I joke within the company. Um, and so I, the learning curve is is quite phenomenal for not being technical. They're teaching me to be technical again, which I'm loving. But um, right now I am a, what's called a program manager. It's a relatively small private company, and that I've I've known the CEO for like 15 years. So the main reason of going there is it's all about internet security and not to sound cliche, but saving lives. And when you can find somewhere to work like that, you know it's all good. So I'll be looking at some of our product management, how we can better integrate to get some of our solutions out. That, that will help other people. So there's a blog site, not to, not to push it, but it, it's actually pretty interesting. You go to team slash cymru.org. We've got a, uh, a nonprofit research activity there called Dragon that we would love people to join. And we have some free malware analysis software that people are welcome to use. So no backdoors, I assure you. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I encourage you to vote for the um, uh, introductory music that uh, should play before the uh, uh, this uh, uh, I would probably will still use the old one for this one but uh, we're getting set to change our music uh, uh, you and everybody else who listens to the podcast should go to uh, www.steptoe.com slash cyber music and vote for a favorite uh, there's uh, three or four candidates you can vote for the status quo uh, or one of three very different uh, uh uh, 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 musical introductions, uh, and I, I, I have to say that uh, um, we've heard from a couple of people uh, who said, oh, thank God, I hated that music. So uh, my guess is that uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, make a change. So uh, if, you, uh, if you don't listen, you're going to be stuck with whatever the other folks choose. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, Margie Gilbert, uh, to Michael Vadis, Jason Weinstein, Alan Cohn, Maury Schenk. Uh, uh, as a reminder, uh, in in addition to voting on our uh, music, you can send us feedback at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a message at 202-862-5785. Uh, and join us again next week when we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.